0: to Live. This is a continuation of the BIOTA podcasts. For more information, biota.org slash podcast. We have two callers on the line. I believe the first is Bruce Damer.
1: Hello, Tom.
0: Hello, Bruce. Good to talk to you. I'll just pick up the second caller and then we'll get into the, the news and notes. Hello, it's Jeffrey. Hi, Jeffrey. Good to speak to you again this week. So, we have the uh, usually assembled Group of conversees. I will go through some news and notes. Bruce, why don't we start with your news? It's been a it's been a busy week for you.
1: It has indeed. I just came back from the Asilomar Microcomputing Workshop. What's that about? That's um an, a, a venerable. It's actually the first conference about microcomputers that started in 1975,
2: and it, it wow, that's a long time ago.
1: Year, yeah. so all the regular characters like Lee Felsenstein and we had. Uh, Aubrey de Grey there was talking about aging, and it's just a fascinating group of people.
0: Have you met Aubrey de Grey before?
1: No, uh, never have, Um, and I just sort of thought what he was talking about seemed very sensible to me, and so I ordered his book while he was doing his talk.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting interesting set of ideas. I think it's... um, in some regard, an attack on the contemporary American healthcare system. But as we're talking about artificial life, perhaps we should concentrate more on that. You you gave a, a, a demonstration there as well on the EvoGrid, didn't you, Bruce?
1: I did, and it, it got a, quite a positive response because um, these are, are deep nerds, um, <laughs> and uh, there were a couple of people who wanted to get involved. So I handed out cards, and same thing happened on Saturday night at Yuri's uh, night at NASA. Had quite a line of people after that presentation um, wanting to know more about it, so it's definitely the messages getting out that was there were probably two hundred people in the audience for that one
0: wonderful and in terms of in terms of the thing you've just come from, was Aubrey de Grey in the audience for the Evo grid? Did the kind of congregated folk recollect for each of the talks or were the separate talks on it at the same
1: time i I believe all of them because um, I did a like a regular session. Uh, and I believe all of them saw that, uh, unless they were some of them snuck off for coffee in the other room, so that that they would have the entire very small conference, I think less than a hundred people, like <coughs> thirty people or something.
0: And did Buzz Aldrin get to see your presentation at Yuri's Night? Did he stay around for your presentation?
1: He didn't. He uh, he actually. Um, got a very good picture of him talking to Carter Emmert. Carter's presentation was earlier in the evening, and he and Carter had a long association, and I got a good picture of them uh, talking on the stage. And uh, then Buzz went off, I think probably went off to dinner with uh, Carter. I think Carter went off with uh, Pete Warden as well, so I lost all of them.
0: Alas, but they're all familiar with the Damarian message, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, in fact... um, I did a workshop with Buzz at uh, Boeing about three, four years ago and got to spend a lot of time with him and hear about the the true story of the landing of Apollo 11, which I'd never read in the history books, uh, about certain failures that happened and certain uh, perceptions that were wrong about about the uh, way that they came down. Mm. But yeah, fascinating group of people and and NASA seems to. I talked to a number of people at the Astrobiology Institute, which, of course, you know, has been struggling for survival. And they had um, algal mats. Uh, these are the algal mats people, and I really love algal mats. So I went over, and you, you could literally change the spotlight on a on one of these mats in a tank, turn the spotlight on and off, and and the oxygen output would change instantly. It was it was amazing. amazing. I never. Never quite understood that, uh, so they had a chart, you know, a computerized chart showing the climbing ox- oxygen output, and as soon as you turn that light off, it started to fall. So these wow. are amazing chemical factories. And then he was—they uh, were showing a cutaway view of uh, stromatolites, our favorite, you know, pre-precambrian creature, and all the different stromatolites that they're modeling and how stromatolite uh, layers form and we're talking about the Shark Bay Hamlin Pool stromatolites, uh, which was one of the destinations for a, a fifth biota conference that hasn't happened yet.
0: Certainly. In the future, no doubt. So for folks listening in live on Blog Talk Radio, the number to call if you'd like to participate with the three of us is 646 The next episode of Bios Live, Friday, the 25th of April at 8 p.m. Pacific, tentatively down as bridging the gap, unifying industry, academia, and hobbyist artificial life. And we're going to discuss some of that through the EvoGrid discussion this evening. A wide variety of GraySum-related news. There is an informal, in fact, all of these are informal get-togethers relating to GraySum. There is an informal get-together with GraySum London at the Dana Centre, D-A-N-A, with the British and Australian Spelling of Centre, on the 22nd of April from 7 to 9. um, There was actually a talk associated with that, but I don't have that in my notes. I think a group are going for the talk from 7 to 9 and then meeting to chat afterwards. So um, I guess the person to contact is probably me, Tom at nobleape.com, and I will forward you on to Justin and the folks that are organising that. There is an informal get-together of Grey Sun Silicon Valley, which I understand... Probably Bruce and Jeffrey will be attending on uh, this Thursday evening, the 24th of April. Bruce, Jeffrey, do you have any more details with regards to that get-together? Jeffrey,
2: I was uh, wondering if you were in town. I will be in San Francisco during the day. Um, where? Where is it and what time is it? I've been receiving the emails, but I don't know what, what time and where.
1: Well, we're um, Alan Lindell and myself are doing a live uh, show on CNET TV on Uh, I think it will be ending about 2 o'clock or 2 to 2.30. And we had the option of sort of staying in and continuing to do things, and I thought maybe it was a golden opportunity to do our first informal get-together, but I hadn't set a place or an actual time yet. Mm -hmm. So
0: do you have a favorite restaurant in San Francisco, Bruce, that people could meet you at?
2: I will defer to Jeffrey.
0: Jeffrey, what's your favorite restaurant in San Francisco?
2: Oh, my goodness, I have lots of favorite restaurants. <laughs> Let me pull out my roulette wheel here. Gosh, I don't know. Well, um, Bruce, maybe you and I can, can decide a place, unless you want to decide now so that other listeners can.
1: Well, I think if other listeners want to know where we end up deciding, they can always reach Tom.
0: Yes, I'll forward to Tom. So folks... Folks, again, folks listening, contact me, Tom, at noble com, and hopefully the collective we, – we now have a great um, Silicon Valley mailing list that is quite active currently. In fact, two of the participants emailed in uh, questions and discussion points with regards to Bios Alive, so we'll come to that. There is also a meetup. Now, I had originally said Washington, D.C., and I'd been told Washington, D.C. by a couple of the participants, but I Googled it just before getting on the air and apparently the meeting is in Baltimore, Maryland on the 21st of April. There is an MMO workshop held by NASA's uh, Massively Multiplayer Online Education Game Workshop, which I believe you have some connections with, Bruce. They're meeting all day on April 21st uh, and will feature, hopefully, Justin Lyon, Gerald DeYoung, Travis Savo, and Robert Rice, and potentially others who have participated in, in bio to lives to date. I'm assuming they'll probably be getting together at a restaurant or something as well. So once again, folks, email me, tom at noble8.com, and I will try to coordinate where they will be meeting as well. The film Expelled was launched today, and I found through the week that one of the fellows that I dialogued with in Dick Gordon's book was actively promoting Expelled. I contacted Dick through the week and asked uh, if we should used this as an ideal opportunity to promote his book. Um, And he said it was a little bit too early currently. It's still kind of coming together. But it does raise an interesting point that we've discussed in previous podcasts with regards to things like Spore and things like this movie, which I believe features biota alumni Richard Dawkins. Jeffrey, what's your thinking with regards to utilizing these kind of opportunities to talk about artificial life? I mean, in terms of kind of guerrilla PR and these kind of things.
2: Oh sure I mean I think any you know anything that uh, d- you know depends on the I don't know anything about this movie, but uh sure um, tag along you know grab on to whatever whatever is uh out there in the in the in the public meme pool and and use that sure
0: certainly I was thinking of Douglas rushkoff's media virus in particular, which was a early book that should teach all participants in artificial life and related digital technologies, how to actually get quite proactively involved with the media in these kind of circumstances, and certainly uh, jamming with Bruce over the years, this seems to be our kind of collective vision with regards to what artificial life developers should be
2: doing. I'm looking at that book right now here in my bookshelf. I really enjoyed that book.
0: Oh, Yeah. Yeah, no. Doug Rushkov is clearly a visionary, and I think ironically he has also spawned a number of connections that Bruce and I share as well. And I think yeah, it's a very useful, uh, very useful tome, uh, even though it's now probably more than a decade old. Mm. Anyway, I received two bits of email from folks who will be attending the newly formed Graceum Silicon Valley. The first was from Scott Schaefer, who corresponded with us last week. Uh, Scott points out that he's from Sausalito, California, uh, which apparently is just north of the Gulf. Gate so the photos of the water that I'd seen was from the north rather than the south he asked me with regards to the recent discussion whether artificial life was a hobby for me or whether it's connected with my profession and to date artificial life has been a wonderful hobby for me Um, and I think that probably comes through in the narrative through these podcasts so far I think A number of things would need to change before it became a profession for me, but I do have hopes for the future. Scott Davis wrote quite a long email about what he'd like to see in the future Biota podcast. He's interested in discussions with regards to artificial societies and artificial life, uh, ecosystem evolution, and simulating social organisms such as ants or termites or higher order creatures and how the swarms of individual agents can work together for the benefit of the group. We touched on this briefly, I guess, Jeffrey, with regards to uh, entropy and sustainable simulation, but I think that was a topic that touched a, a number of chords in the listening audience, so we'll need to do something like that in the in the near future. It may actually be something that we can discuss with regards to the game SDK, which should be coming up in the next few biota lives as well. I hope to have Chris Hecker on, who I mentioned in uh, the original discussion with the, regards to the artificial life SDK and games. And I think he could uh, add a new dimension to that discussion. But we may do something in the future specifically with regards to emerging artificial life societies as I think it, it kind of bends into stuff that I've done with Noble Ape and avatars and a wide variety of the discussions that we've had to date. So if you would like to suggest a show topic for Biota Live in the future, you could receive a book. Four books, The Ancestor's Tale by Richard Dawkins, I Was by Steve Wozniak and Gina Smith ever since Darwin, by Stephen Jay Gould, and the Oxford Dictionary of Philosophy are all up for grabs if you would like to suggest a topic for Biota Live. If you would like to call in, the contact number 646-200-0640. The question this week isn't really a question at all. It's more a discussional update with regards to the EvoCrit. So, Bruce, you've had a few days to kind of uh, collect your thoughts, and you've also given a presentation recently with regards to the EvoGrid. In terms of the state of the EvoGrid, a.k.a. State of the Union, with regards to the EvoGrid, what's your current thinking?
1: Well, I think that the discussions on the list have been extremely valuable and useful. Uh, one of the attendees of the recent conference you know, brought up some really tough points, which we've all... It seems like technical people always see the same issues such as if if a creature travels from one artificial life um uh, scene graph if you will to another how does it register itself in uh, and how, how does it determine whether its sensors will work and the physics will work with it etc and on the other hand it's funny because he was saying hmm, there are all these problems but and then in the same question he said but it's so interesting and and when somebody makes that kind of a comment, I realize that now their head is, their, their machinery is going. And he came out to me later and said, this is just one of the most interesting things that has occurred in my head in 20 years, is, is this challenge of how to do this. So I think there's an innate fascination with the challenge of having disparate biological simulations, if you will, or artificial life environments uh, talk to each other. Uh, so anyway, if, it's a, if that kind of an August group gets gets their imagination grabbed, you know, because they've seen everything, so you know that it's a it's a powerful meme.
0: Certainly, the two main threads coming through the list related to the kind of artificial life development group, and then uh, the biologists and paleobiologists um, represented by Dick Gordon and, and Roy Plotnik uh, specifically, and. In terms of their kind of collective visions, can you give some summary to the discussion in that regard?
1: Well I think that, that Dick I mean, Dick comes from the world of, you know, truly in depth biology and embry- embryology and low level and anybody I have a I have a good friend who works who worked at the Scripps Institute and now he works in a private he's an immunologist as well. And he said, Look, you know, you were talking about simulating living systems, but do you have any idea how complex an individual cell is, and how complex the the membrane is, and the receptors and blockers? And said, so you know, there's there's hun, several hundred thousand individual lock and key mechanisms on the surface of a single cell in your body uh, that has allowed the cell to adapt what can come in and what can't. You know, over over hundreds of millions of years or billions of years. And so when you talk to people who work at that level in, in biology, they think of simulation at the molecular level more often. And we're mm-hmm. often thinking of the simulation at this bulk level of, of the human world. And, and it's a translation problem.
0: I mean, my personal frustration through that discussion, if you think about the way mathematics is impacted on physics, at any point in the creation of, of modern physics, uh, quantum mechanics, QED et al., the impossibility or the enormity of the problem could have been stated internally within the physics community, but the access to things like mathematics enabled the conversation to be had. Certainly, in terms of artificial life in, as, as a productive use in biology. I think of it as a similar kind of tool as mathematics is in physics. It's a, a theoretical framework that can be used in a highly applied fashion. But we need to start fashioning the tools, so to speak. And I think my own reading through the conversation, and I kept relatively quiet, was that the biologists need to be able to to use a perfect Demerian term, Brock. What we are trying to do in terms of it being a, a future tool as opposed to a current simulation state that we need to actually move artificial life analogous to mathematics to a point where we have all these wonderful prescriptions and in order to do this we may need to do something which is quite playful quite abstract and not necessarily connected to biological problems currently am i summarizing that right in your own thinking as well bruce
1: uh jeffrey you you had some i I detected some
2: thoughts coming from you you did oh yeah well, you're right. Um, I'm uh, very interested, and in fact, I think both in the case of physics as well as in the case of biology, but probably more in biology, that we build models that represent different layers of emergence. And I think that um, if it's a good model, then, uh, and if it represents a fairly high-level phenomenon that is much higher than what happens on the, on the surface of a cell, um, then it's, it's legit. Uh, in fact, you could say that the biology that happens on the surface of a cell is a fairly high level of emergence uh, in, in the context of what's actually happening on the atoms that create the molecules, that enable the molecules to hook together in a biological way. So I think uh, you know every level of simulation is, is a chosen level and I think biology actually in fact and I might even say that it's the nature of biology that there are different levels that are somewhat coherent in themselves so in uh, the analogy with regards to
0: mathematics
2: and physics
0: do you think
2: oh um, in other words Newtonian physics works on a human scale it's useful it's practical but if you go out into the you know into uh, into the universe and the cosmos it's not very useful then you need to incorporate Einsteinian relativity and if you go down to the subhuman level then you need to look at a different level of physics so I think that um, perhaps the lowest level of physics is the one that can explain all else above it but that doesn't mean that our models are not practical at the levels that they are and the same with artificial life
0: so as, mathic,
2: as math
0: is to physics, what do you see as analogous to biology, if biology is physics?
2: Mm, interesting. Um, it kind of reminds me of one of those debates. Uh, in fact, I was looking up some of the debates between Dawkins and Gould and, and uh, some of the other folks who were participating in that, Um what is, the, where, what is the unit of evolution? Is it the gene? Is it the species? Is it the individual? And so on and so forth. And I think that's, that sort of like speaks to this, uh, this uh, kind of way of thinking, that there are different levels, different units of evolution, perhaps. Perhaps there are multiple units of evolution. That might be one interpretation of it.
0: But certainly, if, if, if there is something analogous to mathematics from physics and biology, that are you saying that currently exists or that needs to be created?
2: I don't know if there is is a direct analogy. Um, if, if mathematics is the language of physics, or if it's the language that we use to describe physics, perhaps it's also the language to describe biology. But uh, and and I think it does to some degree. I'm not sure. Maybe Bruce has some thoughts.
1: I think that the 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 metaphors, uh, I, sh- I showed a, a number of artificial life systems um, to the audience at this recent conference, and, of course, I always show Carl Sims' piece from Science American Frontiers, because you know, Alan Alda does such a great job of narrating it, and it's so visceral that people can understand it. And I think that really just, I mean, the, the audience responds, I mean, they laugh at some of the movements of the creatures. I mean, they really... Sort of biologize them, and maybe there's something deeper there, which is that, the, as, as you're pointing out, that there's a language of biology, and it, some of it is in movement. And I know this is where Gerald comes from, and to some degree, yeah. come from Jeffrey. Some of it's in movement. That things that are biological, so these are meta, meta language. But things that are biological move in certain ways, and you'll never see that in straight laws of physics, universe. You'll never see that kind of movement. We know it when we see it.
2: In fact. Yeah, in fact, we've evolved to see and understand things on that level, which is why it's so hard for us to understand things on a quantum level or on the galactic level,
1: as yeah, Dawkins so,
2: describes very well.
1: So when we do artificial life, what we're doing is we're creating a language to talk to ourselves about the living world. Yeah, and and, and so and yet and yet at the immunological level or at the or at the genetic. Cell nucleus level, it's such a weird world. Uh, you know, it's like a zipper factory. It's so hard yeah. to figure out. Spaghetti code is like a tangled, you know, phone exchange. And uh-huh. so we we fall back on these easier metaphors for us of of, of movement or behaviors. Uh, but in truth, the code and, and the inner the inners are as weird as, as the quantum universe. Yeah. So in a sense, it's a, it's a little bit of a you know, spore will give us this. I mean, spore will give us wonderful biological-looking things with no guts at all that have anything to do with how biology made those movements happen or made those things evolve. So we're, we're forever going to have this this dichotomy of easily being able to fool ourselves, just just as robotics in the 1600s or 1700s, you know, making of automata. Uh, was able to fool people into thinking something was alive and it was just simply a bunch of gears and, and crude crockery. And people yet, they were convinced they were alive. And, and Alife has gone, going to have to overcome the same kind of, oh, we can, we can fool most of them most of the time with this stuff and make impressive demos, but it's not the real thing.
0: So returning to this idea of a playful, creative environment, which ultimately I think is the the spirit of the EvoGrid that I've gotten so far, what we are trying to do through the EvoGrid in some regard is further some of these meta-ideas of simulation science that Justin has talked about in previous Biota Lives. So, really, we need this, in some regard, removed from biology, playful environment in order to um, tune these aspects that we're trying to describe quite ethereally with regards to movement. I mean, is that your vision with regards to EvoGrid, Bruce?
1: In a sense, if we only do a movement simulation that you can interact with, we may as well just go buy copies of Spore and and play that. In fact, Will Wright Wright was at Yuri's Night again. I didn't get a chance to talk to him. Amazingly he did not talk about spore. He he talked about a very extensive research work he'd done on the USSR space program, which I was very impressed. It was a beautiful presentation. But so we may as well do well right if we're only going to do things that dilate us and think you know, allow us to play. So there has to be some element of of, of really trying to do the really hard work of having those things emerge from basic yeah. phenomena. And, and what Will Wright had said in January at the workshop we invited him to, is he said, oh, artificial life, it wouldn't be a very interesting game. You know, you couldn't do game play with a true artificial life system because things just don't happen for a long period of time, and you need to have a microscope to really dissect what's going on. So for the EVO grid we both... I mean, a goal would be, because we're such visual creatures and we, we respond to things that move, that in order to keep software developers excited about things, you have to make it have a play, playfulness, but you still have to have it have the real thing going on. And that that is going to be our challenge. Right, Jeffrey?
2: I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, it's a challenge and it's also a way to bring in... People of, of different uh... Different parts of parts of different walks of life i think it would be great to have some highly mathematical oriented people who would be overjoyed to look at uh, things on uh, on a certain level and then other people who are more interested in funny movement um, and everybody sort of partaking in, in making this happen
1: and in, when when i show when I do demos in front of audiences, so for, for 12 years I've done demos of avatar worlds in front of audiences. But it's amazing. The, the, when I show some of the artificial life systems, I get the biggest response from the audience. Even the only other environment that I show that I get a, such a big response is uh, Traveler with the talking heads. Uh, people mm-hmm. are mesmerized by that, and it's so, it seems so real. You know, Second Life and other environments are very abstract to me because maybe you're just watching puppets moving around and there's mostly text chat and it's, it's very confusing. And the traveler has got this, you know, full frontal faces that, that tie directly into how primates interact. Um, and I'm surprised that nobody's replicated Traveler in a new environment yet, but we we, we keep it running so that somebody may one day copy it. Um, but uh, each, each audience member, some of them will come up and say it's the most interesting thing they've ever they've seen. Some of them will be afraid of it. Where could it go? But that's usually not the majority. The nerd will go, how did that work? exactly? you know, how that was directed grass and they got culled out and they, how on earth did this happen? How many generations did it take? You know, kids, kids want to have that. Device. They want to start interacting with it. They want to start tearing it apart. Um, it elicits so many different responses and I think Jeff is right that the the lay person it's really important to reach a wide spectrum of of people with this Uh, to start the discussion because when I went to see Richard Dawkins about the sort of earlier (coughs) version of the evil grid idea this was about six years ago we had tea in his drawing room and we talked about this vision he said this will be important for several reasons but one of the (coughs) most important is it will beg the biology, biological, or biologist community to come up with what are really reasonable definitions for what is a living system. It will mm-hmm. really beg the question.
2: And the other thing
1: he said, and it'll get at you know, it'll be something that we can use to get at the
2: creationists.
1: Uh-huh. So he was he had these two two things in mind, um, and one of the things that I heard recently. Um, was that that at Biota 2, there was a talk by Douglas Adams about artificial gods and things like that. And this was just shortly before he passed away. And in the book, The God Delusion, Dawkins mentions, and I think, Tom, you pointed it out, he mentions in the first chapter that it was at a conference at Cambridge in 1999 where Douglas Adams asked the question, why do we have to put up with all this sort of nonsense of religion that got uh um, that that 's what Adams had said we've got Dawkins going on all this mm-hmm. so, so there's this everything is interwoven so in <clears sense throat> from 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 the beginnings of of biota and the beginnings of the conference series and now the the, the, the evo Grid idea or it's even interwoven with religion inevitably whatever we come out with is going to get tied into religion and you know, hence dick Gordon's book as well, which ties all that into religious questions, questions of existence. and So the evil grid is going to be a lightning rod for that too. So that, that you almost have to sort of prepare for that uh, if you build a thing that it's going to attract that kind of attention.
0: So you've raised a number of really interesting questions, Bruce. And I think the thing that has fascinated me, I've kind of stepped back and watched the discussion evolve through the, through the mailing list. But everyone seems to have their own particular vision with regards to the direction that the EVO grid should go in. And how how will you unify these kind of collective
1: visions? I think what we have to do as a community is find a handful of people, probably no more than five, who are willing to do a little demonstration project. And otherwise, it'll just be a very long multi-year discussion, which will be very interesting. But I, I think of it almost like as the example of Alexander Graham Bell and, was it, Mr. Watson, I can't remember, who, you know, when the telephone worked, the first thing he blurted out was, you know, Mr. Watson, come here, I need you. You know, he's made the first call. It's like, I need to tell you this thing is working. <laughs> Something like that. So then we, we have... Uh, something goes through the semantic web or the semantic chrysalis of the EvoGrid. You know, it's encapsulated. You know, it, it exits its native environment, is encapsulated in the semantics, and then pops out into another uh, environment which recognizes its scaling needs. You know, what, how, how big it is, and what it can and can't do, and what it can see and not. And when that first thing happens, and there's that communication. We're going to have a, you know, a Mr. Watts come here moment, uh, and that, that that will galvanize people you know, because it'll the next set of things will be well. Gee, now that these things have have communicated, there are a lot of shortcomings here, and, and uh, I can see how that's kind of fake over there. And that but that that was really interesting what happened with this, and and then development will roll forward. And so
0: is it almost a, a kind of wiki metaphor in terms of the being stubs for the future? Uh, will it be something where it starts with a very simple system and then as, as it develops, it adds stubs for the future? I mean, I think mm-hmm. for folks listening in, we're talking in very kind of abstract terms with regards to a number of things. And I think certainly this comes through the mailing list as well. Is it still too early to give some kind of initial definition of what the evo grid will look like in a kind of conceptual sense or is it something that you can see in your in your in your mind currently Bruce
1: um, i I think what we should always do and, and this is hard something was discussed three weeks ago I think which was I think it came came from Gerald de Jong, or maybe it came from me I can't remember there's a, there's really two types of AI system, and I think Jeffrey can can sort of you know, give us examples. But the deep ones, the deep ones, are where you have a completely coherent, very high fidelity, very high computational sim- simulation, and you're going very deep. You're you're you know you're evolving, the, using full physics, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the broad ones, and the broad ones are rarer. And the broad ones in this sense would be that the evil grid is no it is like the, a wiki. It, it stretches its tendrils out and uses consumes web 2.0 objects. So for example, when you see delicious on your page or you uh, the page has been digged or wiki refers, a stub and, uh, a node and wiki refers to another page, um, you're, that's a kind of communication. So in a sense this web 2.0 stuff and Ajax and whatever is is sending stuff around, and the landing pads tend to be web pages, but they're also back-end databases, so there's this active flow of things, and there are these objects that are wrapped in XML, and they flow, and they're picked up and sucked into one thing, and they appear on another thing, and I think the EvoGrid has to live in that broad space, because if it doesn't, then we're forced to invent a whole world where... Interesting. the world is emerging through Web 2.0 that, that we could use in the EvoGrid. So in a sense, wikis and everything <clears throat> out there are already examples of how the EvoGrid might work or look.
2: That's very interesting, Bruce, and um, it, it brings to mind something that I've been thinking about over the past three months, and that is um, the rate at which things move through the Internet in this Web 2.0 world. Are slower than animation rates they're more real they're 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 global and they can pick up bits of knowledge and intelligence and interaction in in a very deep way and so how how can we find a way to take that those waves of information and evolution and adaptation that go across the internet um, and how do we make that something that moves in an interesting way yeah, and, and right. one
1: of the fellows in one of the, uh, the Bio Live calls said, "Yes, the EvoGrid organisms will actually publish their, their own RSS feed, <laughs> and then other organisms will figure out if they can, you know, interact through their RSS feed." And yeah, I think, I, I think this is wow. one
2: of the most fascinating problems. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, and it, yeah, it is incredibly fascinating. It's almost like cyberspace is growing up in terms of the richness. And it's, it's growing, growing up.
2: Yes, yet and growing
1: toward what we want to do.
2: Right, and in fact, I would even say that it's possible that even though, uh, because of bandwidth or, or physical constraints of the internet, that perhaps the we will get the illusion of animation rate by something something we haven't thought of yet, and this is something that Jaron Lanier said at a, at a conference in Palm Springs that I was there at the conference as well. Uh, We were both keynote speakers there, HPC conference, and Jaron Lanier said something which really stuck in everyone's mind, and he was talking about the human brain and how the human brain's um, innate desire to predict, which is now being seen as one of the most important parts of neural neocortex architecture is the prediction, uh, is, is how we overcome the latency that is, that is, in that's there because information moves so slowly through the brain, um, and of course the, the, the important thing in making his point was that we can apply these ideas to the internet.
1: And uh, but, at the recent TED conference, there was a there's this whole new class of people who who build these immense crawlers uh, that, that connect to streams of various types and look for information and then they build these flash-based graphical front ends and they're incredibly dynamic i mean that this guy was just flying through stuff and and images were just flying around and and he was saying well here's here's an example of a you know a meme that's propagating through through cyberspace and 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 it was real time this is this this is how has spread you know it's spreading from this continent to that continent geographically but here it's, it's you know, multiplying in numbers and here's where a change occurs yeah in, in the idea and and various feeds are picking it up and I'm thinking, wow, this is becoming animation speeds now.
2: Yes, yes. If you think about I mean when you you know, when we think about how fast how quickly we can move information packets around, you know, to create uh, an avatar moving or some physical object in a virtual world, um you know, it's slow. It's like a couple times a second or maybe three a second or, you know, along that that basic rate. But if you take the Earth and you think about how fast these electrons are moving around the Earth to make the Internet happen, and if you scale the Earth down to the size of a basketball, and if you think about that as an organism and this information is moving around, I don't know, maybe I'm taking this metaphor in surreal directions, but somehow I'm I'm almost able to visualize... Somehow making animation rate simulation happen, I but I'm not think, quite sure how.
1: And I think we can, and, and and if we can't now, we will be able to in a year or two, because we'll, there will be sufficiently rapid uh, flows. And there's well consider also this thing: what if the Evo Grid uh, organisms? And this goes back to sort of basic pattern recognition. I mean, these fellows building their flash animations are really just representing things. What if the evil grid itself, you know, we talk about the food and the geography, the food and the landscape is, is the semantic web. And the evil grid itself will be a mechanism, an adaptive mechanism that will allow us to understand what's happening in the semantic web. And that that in its own right, It'll be, end up being a tool. It'll end up being an unpredictable tool, but there will be bots come a life creatures. You know, it will go beyond just just bots. These will be adaptive bots, and perhaps there will be commercial applications of that. But given that we're not very commercial people, we're just fascinated with the, what would be the visual results of having an a life grid mapped over the semantic web and consuming it at at, a ferocious pace Mm -hmm. and producing visual results. You know, it's basically Darwin's pond across all of cyberspace.
0: Mm -hmm. So returning to your deep and shallow metaphor with regards to existing artificial life simulations, do you see the shallow artificial life simulations being something like Tierra, for example, where you're dealing with uh, string manipulation and, and very low-level concepts, and the deeper things being, I don't know, Darwin at home or something of that nature, possibly no blame.
1: Precisely, precisely, and and uh, it's funny how the metaphors emerge so early on, and it might be that uh, if you look back at at the symbioorganisms organisms on the. Internet on the Institute for Advanced Studies machine on Un- Neumann's machine, they were here, and, uh, and then the, the deep systems only came when when you had the ability to make a visual virtual world. One of one of the, the questions will be: Do we need a 3D virtual world for the evil grid? You know, we're all pretty hooked on 3D virtual worlds. We like them. We're 3D binocular vision creatures, but these creatures might live in a broad wide semantic web might not that might not be relevant to them i mean there there, there isn't a 3d metaphor operating at all in the semantic web it's all about pipes and queues and strings and messages and and, and mm. searchable tables and stuff like that so much as we crave uh, to walk around in a virtual jungle and watch things happen the the, the native environment of cyberspace may not have any of that metaphor in it
0: but do you think humans are the selection pressure somewhere through this that ultimately there needs to be an aesthetic component just to draw people in to develop uh you know components of the evo grid i mean do you think that will force uh, a visual component to it or do you think you can gather the the strength of minds purely on a, a tierra like simulation environment
1: well, I remember uh, there was that one attempt to put a, you know, the Almond interface on Tierra, which ended up just being colored bars. Um, and it was challenging. But could you imagine that uh, you would walk into this future world, this very high-fidelity, high-physics, you know, real-time 3D world, that does represent all cyberspace? And the little mound of, of white, wiggly things are you know, news memes that are now spreading out, you know, and and you get my point, you could create metaphors, visual metaphors for all of this. Um, You know, mold spreading across a a piece of bread or a a, uh, decaying pizza represents
2: something,
1: um, kind of an awful metaphor, but uh, flows of, of liquids. I mean, certainly in early cyberpunk, you know, in Certainly in, in Stevenson and Gibson's work, when they're trying to describe, more, more Gibson, because he was more abstract, he was describing how the at- attack, uh, w- there was something called ice, I think, and it was it was the firewalls around things, and then there were attacks on the ice. Um, and, and he tried to tr- describe this visually, and this was in the early 80s, and, as, as the ice melting away or being chipped away by these attacks. And Tron, films like Tron, tried to do that too. And, and so, you know, that's Hollywood's and, and writer's vision. But maybe somehow we will re-represent cyberspace that way. And But are then the creatures gaining anything from having a physics-based world, or is there some grand unification going to come down the road?
0: So in terms of this metaphor with regards to appeasing the biologists, folks like Dick Gordon, how do you put these two things together?
1: I think it's, it's very difficult because, and, and the original discussion in Dawkins' drawing room was, if we had an annual you know, uh, festival, competition, whatever, where, where a, an august committee of individuals is able to look, poke their heads into an artificial life, world. Th- At that, that point, it was called the Alive Prize. And as a biologist, when you look inside that environment, and it just strikes you, I'm not going to call that Alive. I'm just going to study its life cycle. It's interesting to me, as a biologist I've seen this all my adult career, it's interestingly enough that I'm going to give that a name, and that a name, and that a name, and I'm going to study its life cycle. And, and I think that when that happens, and, and these biologists don't have to they, – they, they can say it's lifelike and interesting, but when that happens, I think we've made, we've done it. Uh, but that might be decades hence. It's hard to say. I put in a on, – on Stuart Brand's long bet site, I put in this bet that by 2029, a biologist would take a peek into one of these digital soups and say, I'm studying this. I'm going to write a paper on this
0: from bioinformatics to informatics. Um, This is, yeah, this is all very visionary, but in terms of the context of your three-year PhD program, Bruce, I mean, ultimately, we are creating a manifesto in, in real time in terms of these discussions, but in moving, do you see that the code is written in parallel to these discussions? Do you see that there needs to be a, a kind of manifesto that's created first, and then the code has come in? How do you see this interaction?
1: I I see sort of tapping the natural energies. I know that Adam uh, is writing all these, these protocols. He's a protocol junkie, and you know he's written the protocol that blasts through NAT ser- servers and things like that. And if that energy can be harvested, we're... He writes some kind of an initial protocol and writes supporting code, and then two or three uh, artificial life developers agree to uh, connect into that protocol and send stuff back and forth. Then we'll have something going. Now, what what they came up with initially in the initial discussions on the list was, hmm, maybe we should start off even simpler and build a web interface that can simply query the A life systems and say what's going on inside Nova Ape right now? And, Ape and and you even generated some XML, Tom, already. And Certainly. it reports back to a web portal, that this is what's happening inside of me. And then it queries the next system. And I think that perhaps it's a wise first step because it says, you know, we can provide a registry that registers in these environments and then it peeks it peaks into them. And it's the first step. Level of communication. The environments aren't communicating with one another, but they're communicating with a portal, a Web 2.0 portal that's reporting on them. Well, certainly
0: it's relatively easy, returning to the idea of the RSS feed, to have autonomous node late simulations communicating through a, a, a system that is analogous to RSS. It could even be an HTTP um, kind of pickup. Uh, I don't think that that is conceptually a problem. But the idea of existing simulators finding shared bits of information in their own RSS feeds and then propagating those bits of information across uh, a series of simulators, perhaps through some kind of hybridized agreed XML, which is why I put the ape uh, XML phenotype out initially, is actually quite different to the vision where the Internet and the kind of pulse of the Internet is the pulse of the Evo grid. Although I can see in probably a distant future these things coming together particularly as you've noted if we get in commerce, uh, you know visionaries picking up on the fact that we've solved a few of their uh, current hard problems with regards to uh, network propagation and uh, perhaps managing loads and perhaps communicating information. I mean if the Evo grid can create its own language language internally and then optimize based on the, uh, you know, strengths and weaknesses of the network, then that is ultimately a a kind of no-brainer in terms of its uh, sale into commerce or at least its widespread propagation. So I don't necessarily see what we're discussing currently in terms of individual simulators communicating through an RSS feed not necessarily ending with the whole Internet adopting the EvoGrid But in terms of timeframes, I mean, certainly the the history with regards to all these kinds of discussions and our own kind of collective developments has been prefaced in in decades in terms of the, you know, maybe five-year time quanta at a bare minimum in terms of actually getting some of these more abstract ideas out there. In terms of bringing in the numbers initially, you've had a great degree of success uh, in terms of kind of sparking interest in the, in the various talks. My understanding is the PhD ends with uh, an, a, an actual demonstration, almost a theatrical demonstration. What's your current thinking on that, Bruce?
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'll just quickly describe this. I know Jeffrey has more thoughts to contribute here. Um, what? In fact, I got all the papers today from University of East London, um, and it says I've been accepted into the program and
2: it's various
1: various things in front of me here the uh, code of practice for postgraduate research programs spelt in the Australian spelt in the Australian and English way of course um, but um, the idea was since I'm kind of a promulgator popularizer or you know perpetuator and I've been doing that you know most of my adult life the idea would be set. The evil grid am in fact the, the title of the of the research is, is life after the evil grid you know how would if there was an evil grid and it was used throughout the 21st century to evolve things uh, what would life be like uh, how would it enhance our chances for survival or threaten our survival or enhance uh, life on earth's chances Um and how would we interact with it? It, it? it pushes all the buttons. It's like the av- avatar space. It pushes all the buttons. And would I go and take this on the road and do a show like, like I did for the asteroid uh, ideas at, at the NASA, at Yuri's Night? Um, and could I repackage this so that I could take it to TED and I could take it to various places and raise awareness and, and, and get the press coverage and start to you know, make it into something that people talk about? So that would really be the the work product of the degree, you know, a big piece of writing, but a, a piece of stagecraft as well.
0: Certainly, I've joked this week, and I think I'll continue to use this in the future, that Bruce, you are my avatar in the real world, so to speak, (laughs) particularly as you you propagate these ideas out there. You do exist (laughs) as as an avatar in the real world, whereas perhaps most of us exist more virtually uh, through our various degrees of communication. I think this is probably your vision with regards to uh, Terence McKenna et al. um, and propagating these ideas. So certainly, from the feedback that you've you've engaged already. There seem to be a number of uh, interested and intelligent people that are very receptive to this. How do you see bringing them into the fold?
1: Oh, um, well, the the traditional tools of giving them a web address and hoping they take the time to sign up, trying to follow up. um, There's a whole human resources uh, issue with this. And in fact, it probably is is too overwhelming for me to deal with. Um, The people who might volunteer at people who might want to cover it from a news or blog reporting standpoint. You're building a community. And so actually I need a lot of help. I mean, I can, I can do the avatar on the stage presentation, but follow-up with the community management is something that is too much for me to handle. I, I used to do all of that. So anyone out there wants to take on that job, and to some extent you're doing it, Tom?
0: Certainly I feel the the bio to live CD idea in terms of not just passing people a URL but passing them a physical CD that is looks like something that they would buy in a shop it's uh, you know it contains the URL but it also contains a good degree of audio and things that ironically the feedback that I've received from the Thumb CDs in Boston has been phenomenal I mean, this appears to be the way, not just giving people passively a web address that they can then forget or an email that they never click on, but over the past week, I've seen progressively people put their CDs into computers, log onto the Biota site, and subscribe to the podcast. So I think there is something in the CD in terms of just a, a physical thing that takes up space and, you know, reflects light and these kind of things that is uh, people are very receptive to. And certainly my Background with regards to community uh, building and maintaining um, It's something that I've, I've tried to kind of carry on with regards to my editorial duties with Biota. But I think the the technical challenge of actually getting people empowered enough to spend you know hours to tens of hours generating code to kind of labour in the trenches, so to speak, is something that we can learn a lot from perhaps in some regard, the open source movement, but also various low-level motivators as well. Jeffrey, I I hear you've been chapping at the bit through this discussion today. What's your thinking with regards to all of this?
2: As far as how to do the EvoGrid and all of that, I had a few thoughts. Um, One was to think about the EvoGrid as something that could and perhaps should evolve in a bottom-up way um, as opposed to a top-down way and... um, how to do that and perhaps one way is to think about th- the existing artificial life sims that are that are out there now as being sort of the original species that somehow um, kind of come together and form their own env- their their mutual environments
0: yes yeah, and... so the 1.0 for a future 2.0 fundamentally
2: oh yeah definitely i mean i i mean that's how many of us think of software anyway, at any rate, it's always evolving. It's never really finished. And, um, and you start with something that you already have, right. And then you build from that. So like, for instance, you, Tom, uh, your, your, uh, XML phenotypes. Um, I, I took a look at that, um, recently and, and I've been thinking sort of in the back of my mind, how can I make an equivalent, you know, for, uh, for, for gene pool? And in what are the, what's the overlap? And so, just sort of thinking about that, I think is the start. Um, so, like for instance, if two two developers decided, okay, uh, well, well you, you made the first step, right? You, you made that XML. I don't know everything about it, but um, but I looked at it and I thought, well, maybe if I made something like that, now we both have now we've both agreed on this language, and um, and maybe that's that's that could be a first step. Um, in addition to uh, what's his name, Bruce Adam who Adam, wrote some protocols? Yeah maybe, yeah, maybe start that little triangle um, of two developers and one kind of glue person.
0: Certainly. And
2: maybe from that you can build up.
0: So I hate to cut you off, Jeffrey, but we have one minute remaining. So once again, we've reached the conclusion perhaps a little un- unnaturally, but we will definitely continue this discussion because I think there are a number of different directions. For folks interested, evogrid.org. I'll include a link in the show notes. Um, Next week, we are talking about bridging the gap between industry, academia, and hobbyist artificial life developers. Thank you both very much for uh, contributing this evening.
2: Thank you. Our pleasure.